Well, good morning. Uh, and mom, I know you're watching. Happy Mother's Day to you from afar. Um, I love you, okay? Uh, to all the other moms here, happy Mother's Day to you as well. Before we jump into 2 Corinthians 11 today, we've been walking through the book of 2 Corinthians, uh, which is coming off of last week uh, with the spicy hot sauce sermon. This is where Paul comes a bit unglued, uh, and he brings out more hot sauce. Um, last week, Paul preheated the oven, and today Paul is cooking. Uh, which makes this seem like a strange Mother's Day sermon, uh, but we'll bring it all together, okay? Before we dive in, there are a few quick things I do want to bring up. Um, Next week, we're having a a, a special guest preaching that I promise you, you won't want to miss. Uh, He's one of our our global partners on the field in South Asia, and he will be preaching out of the second half of 2 Corinthians 11, uh, which, if you've seen it, is a long list of Paul's suffering. And if you're familiar with what's going on in his part of the world, uh, there is a lot of suffering and persecution that unfortunately uh, he has seen firsthand, uh, which is why uh, for tight security reasons, his message next week uh, will not be saved on our YouTube channel, uh, nor on our website. Uh, he, he, this guy, he's personally not suffered like Paul, but some of those that he has worked with have. Uh, so we'll get, uh, he'll give us an up close look at his work and what God is doing around the world and how we as a church can and hope to be involved uh, more so with him in the future. Uh, I promise you, you won't want to miss it, uh, but you'll need to be here in person or uh, be tuned in live uh, at 10.30 a.m. next Sunday. Uh, and then secondly, uh, I want to say up front in regards to Mother's Day that I know both Mother's Day and Father's Day for many <clears throat> comes with mixed emotions because I know for some it can be a little more difficult because it reminds you of some sort of loss or struggle associated with your mother or with motherhood in general, leading to possible grief and mourning. And I want you to know uh, we recognize that and we see that and we mourn and we grieve with you. Well, at the same time, uh, today is also a time of celebrating and honoring the mothers in our lives. Uh, I know for a few, it's your first Mother's Day with a baby in the womb, uh, and that's exciting. Uh, I also know for some, your Mother's Day is way bigger this year than it was last year uh, because you've added to your family, and our church does a great job of being fruitful and multiplying, uh, and we praise God for that. Amen? And for many of you, it's a reminder to call your mother uh, and tell her happy Mother's Day. Yes, today is Mother's Day. So call your mother uh, and tell her that you love her and you're thankful for her. But what I know to be true, at least from my own life, and I'm so thankful for, is there are a few things, there are a few things in life that can compare to the love that a mother has for her children. You know, I see this both with my own mother, uh, with my wife, and with so many of you uh, here at New City. And as soon as a mother has a child, there is an instant connection. There's an instant bond knowing that you would do anything for that child. Uh, that mama bear instinct, okay, that is real. Uh, let me tell you, I know, I've seen it firsthand. Uh, do not mess around with mama bear. Yes, bears are soft and cuddly. Uh, there's security with bears, but don't be fooled. They are fierce and they are powerful. Uh, bears are strict. I've watched YouTube videos on this all week. Bears are strict with their cubs. Uh, and you know why? Because they love them. A mother that loves her child will discipline her child. And just like, we, uh, just like how we saw this with mothers, uh, with the, we see this with mothers with their children, we also see this with the Lord. Hebrews 12, 6 says the Lord disciplines those that he loves. 
which is quoted from, also quoted from Proverbs 3.12. Uh, Deuteronomy 8.5 says, Just as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. Discipline and correction from a parent to a child, uh, it's an act of love. Uh, said no kid ever, right? Uh, no, I don't know many children that love to be disciplined and corrected in the moment. It feels like hate, but it's love. You know, without discipline and correction, as we know too well, foolishness continues. Uh, discipline, correction, and rebuke is an act of love. But we need to be careful here because strong discipline and firmness without being balanced with compassion and warmth does not display the heart of God. Where on the other side, compassion and warmth without firmness and discipline will lead to indulgence and foolishness. And so we need both. We need to lay down deposits of both. And Paul, throughout this letter, has been making deposits of warmth and compassion. Uh, And as I said last week, uh, now Paul has turned up the heat and he has gone from defense to offense in our passage today. Uh, And into next week, uh, this is the climax of, of this. Like I said, uh, Paul today, he is cooking with grease. Um, this is where Paul seems to come unglued. Uh, it gives a sharp correction to the rebellious few in the Corinthian church. Uh, and, and this is when uh, your mama, uh, who loves you and cares for you, who has wiped away your tears and gives you a big hug every time you see her, and you know that that woman would do anything for you, uh, and you know that she loves you dearly. This is when that mama bear uh, stops the car, pulls over on the side of the road, and gives you a heart to heart. Uh, she's fed up with your shenanigans and foolishness and in love. She tells you how it is, okay? Uh, that is where Paul is today. Uh, and if your mama has ever done that to you or given you one of those, you better stop acting a fool talks. Uh, call her today. Tell her that you love her and, think, and you're thankful for her because that likely was an act of love. And I get it. That's not always the case, uh, especially if deposits of warmth and compassion uh, never existed uh, or weren't ever evident. Uh, but what we need to see uh, and know is that firmness, uh, firm correction done with compassion is an act of love. And what we know from this letter is that Paul deeply, deeply loves this church. He cared for them. And he has shown so much warmth and, warmth and compassion. And now he's bringing, um, bringing out some good old-fashioned Pauline sass in our time today. Uh, you're, we're going to see uh, four ways to act a fool. That's our outline. Four ways to act a fool. And the commentator who, who I kind of got this idea from, uh, he actually said four ways to be a complete idiot. Uh, and to say that, uh, we say Happy Mother's Day. Um, so we're going to change the language a little, a little bit. Uh, but on the back end, after our four ways of acting a fool, we're going to see as our main idea, seeing that even in our foolishness, Jesus came to give us his righteousness. That's our main idea. That's where we're going. That's where we're driving. But on the way, Paul pulls over uh, the car on the side of the road and has a firm heart to heart. Uh, This is that sermon uh, where if you don't really catch the sarcasm here uh, and you miss what we're doing, uh, the outline you see in write down done in isolation uh, may be heretical uh, and considered false teaching, which is a bit of ironic today because we're talking about false teachings. Uh, And so just up front, what you write down with our outline, our four points today uh, as we go is not what to do. Uh, Don't miss that. Okay. Uh, and And as we go through each of these, I want you to think of this as a mother having a direct and honest conversation with her wayward and rebellious child. Uh, it's sassy, but don't be fooled. It's drenched in love. Okay, 
Um, so look at this, look at the sass and sarcasm here that Paul, as he writes, let's kind of start at the end of chapter 10. Uh, Paul says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So that's where we ended last week. And then we pick back up in chapter 11 in contrast, and look what Paul says in verse 1. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. Uh, And Paul, in other words, Paul is saying, you want to act like a fool? I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you how to act like a fool. Uh, He's saying, bear with me as he acts like a fool. And then he begins his boasting, which is ironic from what he did last week, right? Uh, And look what he says in verse 2. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul here is drawing off of historical uh, Jewish uh, marriage and engagement language, where it, was, where it was the father's responsibility to present his daughter to her husband as a pure virgin. Paul is drawing off of a fatherly love that a father uh, has for his engaged uh, daughter. Uh, that father loves his daughter deeply. Paul says he feels a divine jealousy for them, making the father-to-daughter connection, uh, showing that Paul is the father uh, and this church is the bride-to-be. That's kind of the connection he's drawing there. And this is when that mother pulls over the car uh, and after asking time and time again for them to stop doing what they have been doing and says, child, I love you. I want what's best for you. Uh, And what you're doing right now, that is not what's best for you, okay? Uh, You have been ignoring my request. Uh, You don't, okay, and you don't ignore mama bear. That's just what you don't do. And if you remember, Paul has already addressed this church and most of them, a large majority, they have responded well, but not this small rebellious minority of people. Uh, They've ignored Paul. Well, as we see, Paul deeply loved them which is just to step one to becoming a fool. Number one, ignore those who love you the most. Again, this is what not to do, okay? Ignore, step one in becoming a fool, ignore those who love you the most. When correction comes our way, specifically by those who love us and care for us and want what's best for us, especially those who are walking closely with the Lord, who know his word, who seek the Lord's wisdom and are guided by his word and sensitive to the spirit of God, we'd be fools to ignore their correction. Uh, And in return, heed the wisdom of those who may say nice things to us, but it's for their benefit and not yours. The warning for us is to ask ourselves and consider. Like we need to ask, who is speaking loudest in our ear? Is it those who love you? and are guided by his word, or is it the cable news anchor, uh, or a blogger, or a politician, or a friend, or a family member who's not yielded to Jesus? What Proverbs 1-7 tells us, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what that means is that you can't have true wisdom that comes down from God if you're not in awe of Jesus Christ. Uh, If step one in being a fool for us today is to ignore those who love you the most, then on the flip side, step one in walking in wisdom is to listen and follow those who love you the most. And if we've put our faith in Jesus, then the one who loves us the most is God. God has the capacity to love us the most. And he displayed his great love for us by giving his son Jesus Christ for us so that God could have us eternally and forever. So first and foremost, in walking in wisdom is to follow, actually follow wisdom himself, is to follow and trust Jesus Christ. And so step one in acting a fool is to ignore those who love you. And in turn, step one in walking in wisdom is to follow the one who deeply loves you. But then to take it a step further, there are also people in your life, like maybe a godly mother or a godly friend or mentor or people here at New City Church that also love you. 
And so we must ask, are we following their counsel or are we ignoring their counsel? And I get it. Oftentimes, wise counsel from two different people who love you may be different in some cases. But as a, as a general principle, we need to ask, who is influencing us the most? Those who love God and us or those who aren't following Jesus and are primarily, primarily concerned with themselves? And then look what Paul says next. Uh, that will show us our second step towards acting like a fool. Look what Paul says next as he continues uh, his strong correction here in verses 3 and 4. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one who we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from one you received, or if you accept a different gospel through the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Uh, did you see what Paul said there, right? He basically said in, in different words, just like the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, he wants, uh, the serpent wants to do the same thing to us. Our enemy wants to lead us astray, as Paul says. Uh, lead us away from a sincere and, and pure devotion to Christ. Uh, this is when your mother sits you down on her couch uh, after you've had a rebellious semester and says, child, I love you, but those people in your life are leading you down the wrong path. Uh, and she tells you that because she loves you. Listen, we have an enemy uh, whose sole purpose in life is to lead us away from Jesus Christ, who wants to distract us and deceive us and take our focus off of Jesus and put it onto anything else other than Jesus. God made us to be devoted to Jesus, to worship him, to love him, and for our lives to be in line with his life. That's the way God made us. God made us to follow him. And anything that draws us away from Jesus, just like I said last week, is a tool in the hands of the enemy. Uh, and, the, and, the first, and the way this plays out, as Paul says in verse 4, is by someone who proclaims another Jesus other than the one uh, we proclaimed, just as Paul said. And then he goes on, he turns it on us and says, or, or if you received a different spirit from the one you received. And then lastly, the third way, he says, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. The tools in the hands of our enemy uh, that pull us away from Jesus that Paul points out are by others proclaiming another Jesus or by us receiving a different gospel or, uh, or accepting uh, or a different spirit or even putting up with it, he says. In short, we're led astray by being influenced by a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. These are primary issues of the Christian faith, not secondary or even tertiary issues. No, these are primary and foundational Christian doctrinal issues, which is just a step two to becoming a fool. Number two, swap truth for lies. In other words, be gullible. Believe everything that comes your way. But more specifically, as Paul points out, if you want to be a fool, believe everything that everybody says about Jesus, the Spirit, and the gospel. Ignore foundational Christian beliefs. Again, don't miss the sarcasm here. Don't do that. Right here we see Paul urging them to be on guard and warning them to be ready because false teaching was all around them. There were, uh, there were Corinthian philosophers that were speaking of Jesus, but it was twisted. And how that translates to us today is that just because someone wears a Christian, a Christian jewelry and quotes Bible verses or listens to Christian music does not make whatever they say true. There are false teachers that reject Christ, and there are also false teachers that proclaim Christ. And, one, and, and the ones that are more deceptive are often the wolves in sheep clothing, uh, the, the false teachers that actually claim Christ. It sounds like it may be true because they quote a Bible verse, but it's off, and it's deceptively wrong. 
And the danger of it, uh, that is very, there's, there's great danger in that, and it's very subtle. I can't, tell me, I can't tell you how many times I've heard someone say, uh, the Bible says, and they quote something, and I say, can you show me that in the Bible? Uh, and they can't do it, uh, because it's not there. We live in a world where there is more information at our, t- at our fingertips than ever before in human history. Uh, we, are, we live in an era where we are in information overload. And because of that, I would argue that quite possibly we have more heresy and false teaching now more than ever before in history. We have more versions of Jesus that are more, uh, that are more variations of spirits. There are more ideas of the gospel, maybe now more than ever before. I mean, we could spend hours and hours on this and learning about all the false teaching. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. But do you know what would be a, a way better use of our time? It would be learning and focusing on what is actually true. Do you know how they teach people in the United States uh, to detect counterfeit money? They don't show them all the fake stuff. And, how, and they don't have them spend hours and hours on what is counterfeit because you know why? There will always be new versions to come out and they'll never be able to keep up. Rather, they have, they have them spend hours and hours studying the real money, looking at it from all the angles, showing them all the intricacies and fine details of the real thing. And so listen up. If you want to be really good at apologetics and defending the Christian faith and being able to detect false teachings, get into God's word. And spend hours and hours sitting under what is true. Uh, If you look at your diet and what you're taking into your brain, uh, and if you're consuming more of what is wrong and what is not true, or consuming more of what everyone else says is wrong or not true, if we're doing that more than we are consuming God's word, we we, we are out of balance. We're out of balance. Listen, my hope and prayer for our church is that we would be students of God's word, not just to know the Bible, but to be transformed by it that it would fuel us to be zealous, to trans- be transformed into God's image and to bring others along with us, that we would know God's word and be shaped by it, and that we as a people have been so transformed and shaped by God's word that anything contrary to it would be easy, easily and clearly detectable. You know, when I teach and preach, I regularly say, look at what it says. Like, read this. Look here. See that. Paul said this. He said that. I do that often, and I do it intentionally for a reason, so that you would see for yourself what is in God's Word, so that we would see what is true, that I'm not just making stuff up. You know, we primarily teach through books of the Bible, verse by verse, so that we would see God's Word as a whole, and not an isolated event that can be easily twisted into what I want it to say, so we can draw a crowd or appease everyone. The best defense against false teaching is a good offense, which is to know God's word, to know what is true. Yes, right, absolutely. We need to know and be aware of what is right and wrong and things that are deceptively off. But let me tell you, going down that rabbit trail of false teachings and all the things that are wrong with the world may be one of the best and quickest ways to go into a downward spiral of discouragement and doubt. Just as an example. Right, every time I engage a Muslim with the gospel, Uh, Most of the time, they tell me uh, what they know about Jesus and God, and it's twisted. And it comes from what they've heard through a friend or the Quran or online somewhere. And it's a different Jesus, just like Paul talks about in in this chapter. And to be frank with you, I don't even engage or chase everything they say, because oftentimes it's so twisted that trying to untangle it is a massive task in itself. Now, let me tell you, if it is wrong, I say, brother, that's wrong. Uh, But let's look at what the Bible says about who Jesus really is. Because what I know is that my words and my arguments have no power, but God's word is infused with power. 
with the ability to change hearts and minds. That's, uh, that's what is true and holy and powerful. And so that's where we're going to focus. There are so many examples. But here, here's another one that has come up a lot recently. So, I mean, since the beginning of time, the Imago Day has been under attack with gender issues, with racial and ethnic issues, and with marriage issues. Our world is so twisted with lies that the story is always changing. Yes, we need to engage and confront all the lies in our culture. But again, the best defense is a good offense. As far as, far as I'm concerned, as a church, we will teach and preach the image of God as shown in the Bible. And year after year, we're going to show God's design for marriage, God's design for men and women, and God's design for all people and all races and all ethnicities all over the planet to be seen as equal image bearers in the eyes of God. The Bible is more than sufficient to defend the image of God. And so we're going to focus on what is true and right and continue to come back to the Bible as our foundation. And in the same way, I can talk about the Quran and its problems and discuss religion after religion and all, other, all their intricacies and differences and problems and how they're wrong and how, they're wrong, how they think wrongly about Jesus and the spirit uh, and the gospel. We could talk about spiritualism and all the different philosophies and the ever-changing worldviews that are problematic. We could talk about the false gospels of the political left, the false gospels of the political right, and all the false gospels on the college campus and in the workplace and the family and sports and in relationships. And I also must say, in line with this, we must acknowledge that there's a fine line between false, false teachings and also foolish and silly arguments, as Paul speaks extensively in, on that in the pastoral epistles. Listen, we as a church must continually discern between what is a false teaching and what is a foolish argument. Because the list of foolish arguments, especially in the church, is ever-changing and it is constantly growing. While also at the same time, the list of false gospels and skewed Jesuses and deceptive spirits is also constantly ever-changing and will be ever-changing until Jesus comes back. Our focus here at New City Church, at least with me as your pastor, will not be to try and keep up with every one of these false gospels and skewed Jesuses and deceptive spirits. And I certainly won't engage in foolish arguments. Our focus here at New City Church will be to look to the true Jesus, be transformed into his image and trust in his resurrecting power to guide us in our ever-changing world. We will not keep our focus on what is constantly changing and constantly sinking, sinking and constantly bubbling up to the surface. And I want to make sure that you hear me loud and clear on this. I'm also not saying we stick our head in the sand and ignore the world. No, not at all. Like we engage the world. We need to think well about all things. That is more than clear in Scripture. We need to know what is going on around us and be prepared to engage us. But we also need to be aware of the slippery slope that is constantly moving target that the world will take us into. So what I'm saying, if you haven't caught on, is that most of the applications of our sermons will end up being in some form or fashion. Look to Jesus. Focus on Christ. Be transformed into his image. Focus on what is true and right. Every week, you leave. We leave. I leave. And the world is begging for our attention with some sort of false gospel and false savior and false spirit trying to lure us away at every turn. And every week, I see it as my pastoral responsibility for you and for me to refix our, our gaze on Jesus Christ and to remember and see what is true. To remember that the same resurrecting power that rose Jesus from the dead is living inside of us and guiding us and helping us to discern what is true and not true. And we take our eyes off of Jesus and his resurrecting power, like what was happening to these people in this Corinthian church, if we end up looking to something else other than Jesus and if we focus on the ever-changing, uh, ever, what is focused on what is ever-changing, the weight of the world, it will crush us. And we continually look to Jesus together in community as our source of truth. Everything is false that will be, clear, will be clearly evident. 
So here we are on Mother's Day, uh, getting a little feisty mom. I love you. I told you Paul wasn't playing around today. Um, look at verse 5. See our third step in becoming a fool. Uh, indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles, even if I am unskilled in speaking. I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preach God's gospel to you free of charge? Notice the language that Paul uses here. He calls out somewhat sarcastically these super apostles. That's what he said. They were apparently, these, these guys were uh, apparently great orders, uh, great speakers. And Paul here is defending himself, saying he's not inferior to them because he's not a, he's not a great speaker. Rather, he says, I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles. He basically says, although he doesn't speak well, he knows a lot. He's a smart man. And he, then he says in verse 7, did he commit a sin because he didn't charge them to make them pay? Like he didn't make them pay for anything for them while he spoke to them. You know, apparently this was common uh, during this day, as was common in Greek culture, uh, for these super apostles to charge a hefty fee for them to come and speak. Uh, and in so doing, when they charged this hefty fee and people paid for it, it validated these guys. And so, and Paul didn't do that. He spoke free. He didn't charge them anything. He did it in humility. And, and here, Paul is showing them uh, that he didn't care to be considered a, a super apostle. He didn't want any recognition Rather, Paul took the low place, which leads us to our third step to becoming a fool. <laughs> Number three, strive to be exalted. This is when that mama bear uh, sees what you're doing and she stops that car. She knows that you're doing what you're doing to get attention or, or maybe to get the praise of your friends. And she looks right past it and she knows you know better. Paul, Paul, Paul here saw the pride and the self-exaltation in these people, uh, and he flips it upside down. Because what we'll see next in the second half of chapter 11 uh, is Paul's list of boasting. We're going to see that next week, uh, which was not, it was not the approval of others, and it, he didn't get big speaker freeze. It's a long list of suffering and hardship. Paul, uh, Paul's boast was not in his grandness, but rather how Christ has humbled him. Showing in a roundabout way that his boast is in the Lord, as he said at the end of chapter 10. He doesn't boast in himself like these super apostles did. No, he boasted in Jesus Christ. Listen, yes, false teachings in a church will kill it and cripple it and cause it to lose its effectiveness. And it's utterly destructive. If we don't stand up for what is true, we have nothing to stand on. But what Paul is pointing out here, uh, the other danger that Paul so firmly addresses that can kill a church is pride. A prideful culture, prideful leaders, prideful pastors, prideful spouses, spouses, pride in ministry, prideful people in general will crush the testimony of the gospel. And Paul here is calling it out. James 4, 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is in opposition to pride. He hates it. He wants to chew it up and spit it out. And Paul saw evidence of this in the super apostles. And there's a tension that we hold here at New City Church, and it's wanting to be both humble and hungry. We're hungry and we're zealous for God and his mission. And here at New City, we move. like We dream big. We have a big vision and confidence because we know we serve a big God who is able to do far more than we can ever ask or imagine. And here we are hungry to see God do a mighty work, but the tension is that it's not about us. It's about God. 
And so we must also be humble because we see how, God, how big God is and how small we are in comparison. Being humbled by God is a gift. When we're hungry and have uh, big dreams and visions, we will be humbled. It's going to happen a lot. And it's in God's kindness, kindness that he does that. Because it's not about us and our glory. It's about God and his glory. And so, yes, uh, we want to have a hungry culture here, uh, but maybe even more so, I long for us to have a strong culture of humility. And so in many ways, you know, I really believe this, as crazy as it sounds, I've said this a lot, and I often have to fight, fight to believe this and remember this, but I'm so thankful that the first year of our church was in 2020. Because it marked us with humble beginnings, and for that, I praise God. Killing pride in our life and in our church and killing the desire to be exalted and in turn walking in humility. It is essential and it is so healthy for us, both individually and corporately. Let's look at what Paul says next, starting in verse 8. For our last step towards foolishness, Paul says, I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. When I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I have refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I, do not, because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Paul says uh, he, didn't take, uh, he, he didn't take speaking gifts, uh, but rather uses a form of hyperbole here. And he says uh, he robbed other churches. That's what Paul said. He robbed other churches, uh, which taken out of context, that can be a major problem, okay? But remember, Paul's being sassy here, and he's over-speaking to get his point across, showing he didn't ask them for anything. This is when, this is when that mother looks at her child and says, child, I have clothed you. I have fed you, and I've given you a bed to sleep in, and this is how you're going to act towards me? It's a strong correction, and that's what Paul is doing here. But remember, it's done in love. Paul said here, I, want, I won't stop my ministry. He said in verse 10, I won't be silenced. That's what he said. Why? Because again in verse 11, he affirms that he loves them. And then in verse 12, he says, I'm going to continue doing what I do to undermine all those who are prideful. He calls what they do in verse 12. He says it was a boasted mission, and he doesn't like it. And so he's going to continue to labor. So there is a, a clear distinction between what these super apostles were doing and what he was doing, showing the difference between a prideful ministry versus a humble gospel ministry. Again, gospel ministry is not make, about making ourselves look good, but rather it's about exalting Jesus Christ. And he says those who do this, uh, do this prideful, uh, super apostle ministry, he says in verse 13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. You know, I told you that Paul was on the offense, uh, offensive side today. But the reason he's having to do it this way is because of these super apostles' prideful arrogance. Again, pride is destructive and deceitful, and it needs to be dealt with. And unfortunately, because of pride, it needs to be dealt with with much firmness, like we see Paul do here in chapter 11, which leads us to our fourth step to becoming a fool. Number four, honor the prideful. This sounds similar to the third step, 
Uh, but in that step, we are the ones who want to be exalted, where uh, in this step, we're elevating and honoring the prideful. It's not just being prideful, it's feeding on others, it's feeding others to be more prideful. The right thing to do is to do what God does, and it gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And what this means is that when we see someone showing humility, we should honor that. It's a testimony to the gospel. It points to Jesus. My moms and dads out there, may we not only model humility in our homes, may we also honor it when we see it at work, in school, with your friends. May we be a people who not only model humility and put others before ourselves, may we also honor it. Look at how Paul ends his heart-to-heart talk with his Pauline sass. This is what he says. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his serpents, if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Paul, in this section, uh, has been addressing the prideful know-it-alls that had been deceived and lured in every way other than towards Jesus. And he points out to them in verse 14 that even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. Now we have an enemy that wants to deceive us into thinking we don't need to listen to those uh, we love and thinking uh, that we, we, we can play around with false teachings and be lured by deceit that, uh, and that we don't need what is true and also going in line with that, our pride, uh, we think we know it all. And Paul today has shown us that this is foolishness. Tied all together into close all our time today to end all this foolish talk. You know, as our main idea suggests, and how the gospel reminds us that even though we are by nature fools, Jesus came to us even in our foolishness and he gives us his righteousness. That is our gospel identity. Paul is urging these people, these super apostles, showing them how foolish they are, hoping to draw them back to Jesus who is the exact opposite of foolish. Jesus is perfect in righteousness. His perfect wisdom leads to perfect righteousness. And the beauty of the gospel is that every day our flesh walks towards foolishness, lords to pride and false hopes and false teachings, but yet every day for those that trust him, God lures us back into into perfect righteousness, his perfect righteousness, his perfect wisdom. That's who and what we are in Christ. Through the gospel, God turns rebellious fools into obedient and righteous saints. Because of Jesus, we're no longer fools, but we are saints. If you have lived in foolishness, which we all have in some way, whatever it is, hear this today, the God of the universe, he loves you, he cares for you, he died for you, and he wants to give you his perfect wisdom and his perfect righteousness. And that comes through faith in Jesus. Through Jesus, he takes our foolishness and he makes us a saint. If you haven't put your trust and faith in Jesus, would you do that today? Because faith faith in Jesus is not about what we do. It's not about what foolishness we've done. It's all about who Jesus is and what he has done. It is all about Jesus Christ. And through trusting in Jesus, God blesses us with the gift of being clothed in his righteousness, being made a saint. So if you have not, would you trust in Christ today? to take our foolishness and or your foolishness and give us uh, his righteousness just like he's done for us. I pray that you would. God, you take 
fools and you make us saints. Father, we pray that we would honor you, that we would look to you who is perfect in wisdom, who is perfect in righteousness, who is perfect in humility. God, you had every reason to boast, but yet you humbled yourself to the point of death on a cross. Father, we worship you and we celebrate you today. We ask this all to you.